You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at hopeoakville.ca. Amen. Amen, church. You may be seated. And good morning. Good morning. That was great. It's awesome to be with you in this way. Uh, We are going to be in Matthew chapter 18 this morning. Matthew chapter 18. So you can open your Bibles there. Matthew 18, uh, verse 23. And we are continuing in our summer series through the parables. And so we have another beautiful parable from the mouth of Jesus himself today. And this week, the topic of the parable is on forgiveness. And so I don't know what comes to mind when you hear that word, Forgiveness. What's the first thing that pops into your mind? For some of us, we're thinking about the forgiveness that we have received from God. That's beautiful, wonderful. We're going to look at that today. We've heard, heard songs already today that talk about the forgiveness of God. Um, maybe you have a less churchy answer and you're thinking about the fact that you are already in need of forgiveness from your spouse. And it's like 9 o'clock in the morning and you've already done something and you are hoping that they forgive you on your way to church. That's possible. Um, Maybe when I say the word forgiveness, um, a name of a person pops to mind. And that's the name of a person that you're actually struggling to forgive. Like there's been something wrong committed against you, and there's this name, and there's this person, and you're just really struggling to forgive. Um, I believe, and this is not anything profound, but like the, the wounds of from those who are closest to us, like those stick with us, right? Like they just, they don't just roll off our back easily. We have to work hard to forgive. And the truth also is that as much as we have wounds against us, we have also wounded others. And so I believe that we are all this morning in desperate need of forgiveness. And so I'm so thankful this morning that in the word, Jesus gets to speak to this, to the topic and right to the heart of forgiveness. What is biblical forgiveness? And so the title of our sermon today is really the big idea, and it's this. The forgiven forgive. You're going to hear that phrase a lot, the forgiven forgive. And it comes from a commentary as I was reading it. It just kind of popped on like it's kind of the whole big idea. The forgiven forgive. Those who know how much they have been forgiven are able, they are not only able, they are compelled to forgive others. And so just a word of context before we jump into our text. In our passage, Jesus is describing what relationships in the kingdom are supposed to look like. Like things are supposed to look different in the kingdom. And when I say kingdom, I also want you to kind of just think church. So in the kingdom, the way we function in our relationships are supposed to look different. Marriages are supposed to look different. The way we think about status is supposed to look different. And for our text, the way we engage with conflict in the church is supposed to look different. And to get even more specific, the way we think about forgiveness is supposed to look different. And so just a few verses up from our text, Jesus is teaching how we are supposed to correct a brother or sister in the covenant community or the church if they do something wrong against us. This process of discipline and correction aims at restoration and forgiveness. Like that's the whole point. And so Peter, following this teaching from Jesus, has some questions. So we're going to look down at verse 21. This is right before our text. And Let's read verse 21. It says, Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, 
I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. So this is Peter being Peter, right? Like he's trying to get off on a technicality. And so he's saying, how many times do I have to go through this process of forgiving my brother? There's some wrongs that have been committed. I'm, I'm starting to keep score. And Jesus is saying, uh, you can't do that. Forgiveness in the kingdom is without limit. It's not even, some translations say 70 times 7. That's not a, a, an actual number that we have a scoreboard. It's unlimited. And so following Peter's question, Jesus is going into this parable to show us how is this kind of forgiveness even possible? Like, how is this radical forgiveness, this unlimited forgiveness, possible for the Christian? And so now we get to our text right now, and we're going to look down at verse 23. And point one, if you're a note taker, is this, the unpayable debt. The unpayable debt. So now let's read together verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered for him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him that debt. Okay, we can look up. So this is the beginning of the parable, and already within the first kind of few verses, we have the character, we have some settings, we have some people that are significant. So it starts out by saying that we have a king and his servants. Now, remember, these are not real people per se. These are not historical people. This is a parable, and this story is intended to teach us something about the kingdom, like what it's supposed to look like, and actually for the purpose of ours, what it's not supposed to look like. But this king is not a one-for-one perfect comparison to the heavenly father. He does represent him, but they're not a perfect one-for-one. Not everything about the king perfectly represents God. And we don't know everything about this king other than the fact that for some reason, he wants to clean up his books. Like he wants to settle some accounts, and so he takes an inventory of what he has and all that the servants owe him. And he finds this one servant in particular who owes him 10,000 talents. Now, 10,000 talents, I had to look this up, I didn't know this, but this is a boatload of money. Like 10,000 talents is an enormous sum of money. So a talent is a weight of measurement and has a corresponding value. So a talent, one talent, was the equivalent of 20 years worth of a yearly salary for a laborer. So this servant owed him 20 years salary times 10,000. So I hope some of you are good at math because you can check my math here, okay? So to put this roughly in our dollars, let's say minimum wage is around $15 an hour. And I know it's more than that. Um, $15 an hour translates roughly to $30,000 a year. So what is 30,000 times 20? Some of you got that real quick. That's great. So 600,000, that's right. Now if you take 600,000 times 10,000, we get... A little slower. Six billion dollars. Six billion dollars. This servant is in debt to the king. Six billion dollars. Now, the specific number isn't really the point. The point that Jesus is making with this is this is an incalculable debt. Like this debt is unfathomable. There's no way that this servant can pay off this debt. 
So a logical question would be, how does someone get themselves into debt like this? How can a servant get into $6 billion of debt? And uh, some commentators believe that this would be evidence of some sort of fraud or some sort of, you know, intentional crime. And that's, there's something to that. Like this, there's, some, there's a lot of money here. But when we think of the word servant, sometimes we get lost in translation. This could have been like a treasurer on behalf of the king. And while we don't know how the servant got himself into this mess, one thing that I think is really helpful is that there is intentional wrongdoing here. The servant didn't end up in this debt by accident. It is his fault. And this servant, he goes to the king and he says, like, I I cannot pay this. So the king, he gives him the just consequence of his actions. He says, well, you and your family and everything that you own will be sold into slavery. And even with that, it doesn't even touch this debt but the king is trying to cover some of his losses. And so, like, things just start to get real for the servant, right? Like, he's, he's feeling the stress meter start to come up. Like, he doesn't want to see his family sold into slavery. And, and maybe, maybe you have been, you know, you felt some of that pressure, some of that weight that comes with financial debt. Maybe you've gotten a bill in the mail before and you open it and your stomach just drops. Like, you, you, like, you know, I, this is going to be really tight, Maybe there's been some sort of interest renewal on your home and it comes up and you're like, oh my goodness, like the, whew, like you get nauseous just thinking about this. And now imagine the solution to your problem was some sort of indentured servitude, like the stress meter begins to rise. So this servant is totally helpless, yet totally guilty. And so this servant, he begins to beg the king to let me repay this debt. And even like, even that statement is, it's insane. Like you can't repay this debt. There is nothing he can do. All of his work, if he was to work every single day, as long as he could, he wouldn't even come close. But this is a a desperate last stitch attempt to save his family. But let's look at how the king responds. So he's pleading for his life, but Instead of the king giving what he deserves, the king wipes the slate clean. He forgives the debt, and with a single stroke of a pen, it's gone. The unpayable debt has been forgiven. Now, the obvious correlation from this this parable is that this unpayable debt represents our sin and the fact that we are indebted to God. Like, our sin has amassed a debt that we cannot pay. And we're going to hammer this a little later in, the, in this sermon, but we have to understand the gravity of the offense that our sin has caused in relation to how good and how holy God is. Like, our sin has resulted in this immeasurable debt to God. And to think otherwise shows a deficient understanding of our sin and of his character. And so I don't want to take anything for granted this morning. I just want to even unpack for a little, like when we say sin, there might be some of you in this room who are like, well, yeah, like I know I've done some bad stuff, but have I really amassed a $6 billion size debt to God? And I want to help us with that. And so let's look at what Wayne Grudem so helpfully defines sin as. So he says, sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, 
attitude, or nature. So the moral law of God has been revealed to us through his word. So we have his word, and when we sin, it's a failure to do what this says. And so well, let's look at act for a second. So when we do a sin that is an act, it means that we do things that we're not supposed to do. That's a sin of commission. Or it means that we fail to do something that God tells us to do. And that's called a sin of omission. Let's look at attitude. It's not even simply just the things that we do. It's also the ways that we think and the things that we feel. We want the wrong things. We think wrongly about the right things. We covet and we lust. And all of these things are a reflection of a sinful attitude. Last, we have or nature. So because of Adam, we have inherited a sin nature. We, are, we have an inherited guilt before God. Basically, think of it like our default positions as humans is to do the wrong things and want the wrong things. All of these things, when we do this, they start to accrue a debt. There is a legal debt being piled up before God as a result of our sin. And what the Bible is saying, what this parable is saying, is that this debt isn't like a $1,000 debt. It's not a parking fine. It is a zillion-dollar debt. It is an unpayable fine that we cannot talk our way out of. In fact, the Bible actually goes a little further and says that the wages of, this, of our sin, the consequence of this debt is death. We don't just deserve a debtor's prison. We deserve the death penalty. Like, the consequences of our sin are grave. But the king has wiped our slate clean. So the king forgives this debt of this servant and has given him back his life. And now we get to see how does this servant respond. Point two is this. The unthinkable response. The unthinkable response that lets you know it's not going to be good. Verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. Sound familiar? He refused and went and put him in prison until he should repay the debt. So already, the, the, the first thing we're supposed to see is like, this is an unthinkable response. Like, this is crazy. You have this massive debt that is forgiven. You walk out of the king's quarters, whatever that is, and the first thought in your mind is, I need to go find this guy who owes me some money. Like, how little has your heart been changed that that is your immediate reflex? And so he goes and he found this servant because he was looking for him. And it says that this servant owes him a hundred denarii. More math. So, a hundred denarii would have been about 20 weeks of a laborer's wage, which would be about $12,000. So, like, $12,000 is a real debt. That's a, that's a real sum of money. If someone owed me $12,000, I would know where they are. Like, this is not pocket change, but when compared to the zillion-dollar debt that has already been forgiven, this is a very insignificant amount. In fact, if we take it literally, the debt that has been forgiven is 600,000 times larger 
than the debt that is owed by this other servant. And so this wicked servant walks up to the other servant and he begins to choke him. He begins to choke, he puts his hands around his neck and yell in his face saying, pay what you owe. So this other servant, he drops to his knees and he tries to squeeze out the words while his neck is being squeezed and he says, have mercy on me, have patience with me and I will pay you. As I was reading, I was just thinking like, if anything could have like snapped this wicked servant out of his rage, you would think it would be hearing his own words repeated back to him as he's in this, you know, this state of rage, but it, it, it doesn't. It doesn't jar him out of it. He continues to choke him, and then he throws him into prison until this debt is repaid. So you don't need to be a Bible scholar to understand, like, this is what we're not supposed to do. This is not how we are supposed to behave with those around us. And as we look at this, we're like, that is unthinkable. And yet, this is how we operate all the time. We operate like this constantly. We have real things that happen to us, like real wrongs that are committed, like $12,000 wrongs that are committed against us. But how often do we stop and think about the gospel? How often do we stop and think about all that God has done for us? I don't know about you. So often I run headlong into trying to seek justice here and now in my own efforts. And so then I fail to engage in proper forgiveness and I behave sinfully. And so if you're like me, you know, this is common to you. And while we might not be able to throw people in prison, we do behave in wicked ways of conflict. And so I want us to uh, just look at a couple ways that maybe, unfortunately, might seem all too familiar to us. What are the wicked ways of conflict that we so often respond? And the first is this, outbursts of anger, just like the wicked servant. How many of us, when a wrong is committed to us, our voice gets louder, our face gets red, things get intense, and there is a lashing out in anger, sometimes to those we love. When we do this, we fail to understand all that we have been forgiven. Number two, sarcasm. Oof. Sarcasm is a wonderful thing. It is a wonderful form of humor. But for some of us, when it comes from a place that is desiring to tear somebody down, when it flows from a place of unforgiveness, this becomes a lethal response. For some of us, our sarcasm has been so honed and it can just be tearing somebody down. How about this one? Avoidance. And if you're under 30, ghosting is what this is known as. Unless it's changed, it changes quickly. Some of us, we can't throw people into prison, but like we can delete them from our existence, right? Like we don't text them back. We don't respond to them. We see them in church and we go the long way right? Like they might as well not exist because we'd rather avoid them than engage in biblical conflict resolution. How about this one? Quiet bitterness. You might not be lashing out in anger, but there's something underneath the surface that is just bubbling and it's just a simmer of bitterness 
and it's poisoning you from the inside. And the longer that we stay in this place of bitterness, the grander the story of, of the wrongdoing becomes. Like this is a problem for many of us. Last one, gossip and slander. So in this, it's like, I will talk about this wrongdoing with everyone else except with the individual that caused it. This is also cancer to the church. When we fail to do what the Bible tells us and engage you in conflict biblically, all of these responses become a massive problem in the kingdom. And so what all of these have in common is a failure to look inward. There's a failure for us to understand, oh wait, I have done some wrong in my life. I have been forgiven this unpayable debt on my behalf and I fail to let that inform my response to others. This happens time and time again. So this response of unforgiveness from the wicked servant is unthinkable. And so let's see now what happens in our story. Point three is this, the unmistakable purpose. The unmistakable purpose. Verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him, the wicked servant, and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So, this wicked servant does this act of evil in front of a crowd, apparently. And so some of his other servants were like, hey, weren't you just forgiven? This seems not okay. And so they go and tell the king. And when the king hears about this act of injustice, it causes outrage. Like, how dare you? The king forgave the debt out of compassion, out of pity that he had for his servant's plea. And to see that not reciprocated grieved the heart of the king. The mercy was supposed to lead to more mercy. That was the point. And so the response from this king, it's severe, but it is just. The wicked servant, it says in the text, is delivered to the jailers until the debt is repaid. And some believe that that word jailers isn't even really strong enough. That word could also be called torturers. So the king delivers this servant into the jail to be tortured until the debt is repaid. Well, how long does it take to repay an unpayable debt? Your entire life. So he will now suffer the consequences of his unforgiveness for his entire life. This is a pretty direct illustration of the reality of hell. Hell is where the wicked and unrepentant will spend eternity apart from God. And this gruesome reality is meant to serve as like a really strong warning for all of us right now. And if you think, well, this is just, you know, hyperbole, it's just a parable. Let's read the last verse of our text from Jesus. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Like, when I, was, when I was studying this week, honestly, like, the, 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 the penalty, the severity was a little jarring even for me. Like, part of me expected to, to preach a sermon on forgiveness and have that be a light, you know, warm exhortation to end our summer. But this is a very clear 
and very severe warning from Jesus. And this isn't even the only place that he gives this. Earlier in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, right after the Lord's Prayer, we see Jesus say these words. Verses 14 and 15 of chapter 6 say, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if, here's the condition, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So can we all agree Jesus cares deeply about forgiveness in this covenant community? Forgiveness is a very big deal. And so the unmistakable purpose of this story is to demonstrate the principle of forgiveness and the penalty of unforgiveness. We have the principle of forgiveness and the penalty of unforgiveness. And so let's look right now, we're going to look a little bit closer as what is forgiveness? Like if you're like me, I kind of need to know, like, but what does that mean on the ground and how we operate? And so we're going to start by looking at what is biblical forgiveness. We're going to start by giving some definitions here, looking at the nature of biblical forgiveness. So this is a definition. Forgiveness is the release from legal or moral obligation or consequence. It's the release from legal or moral obligation or consequence. That word release is really important. Um, It's a pardoning. It's a release. And some of us, um, we've been carrying around unforgiveness for a while, and it feels like we have a backpack full of rocks in it. Like it weighs us down. Forgiveness is releasing someone from those legal or moral obligations, and it feels like we just kind of take that backpack off. There is a release. So that's helpful. That gets us closer. Now, there's two aspects to biblical forgiveness, at least, that we see. And the first is an inward element. The inward pardoning of the offense in your heart toward the person. So this can happen before any other conversations take place. A wrong is committed against us. We have the ability to pardon someone internally from the offense that has been committed. And when we do that, that is wonderful. That's still a release. But if we're honest, there's still something off in the relationship, right? Like there's still something that that needs to be healed. And that's where we get to outward. The outward side of forgiveness is the relational reconciling that is done by making the offense right. So when a wrong is committed against us, we should read up earlier on how to deal with it within Matthew 18, we can forgive the person in our hearts, but something still has to happen. So we go to our brother or sister. We tell them our fault privately. And Lord willing, they repent. They ask for your forgiveness. And then from our parable, we understand we forgive them. That is the idea, the ideal within the covenant community that we are supposed to strive for. I don't know if you've had it. Sometimes I've worked really hard to do this, gone to do this, that didn't go so well, and I had to go back here and start all over again. Right? Like, forgiveness is really, really hard. Like, it it often feels like it costs us something. And it's effort to deal with conflict biblically. That is the nature. Now let's look at this, the number. The number. So how often are we supposed to forgive? That's Peter's question. We are supposed to forgive without limit. There is no scorekeeping in the family of God. 
in 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no record of wrong. We're not keeping score, forgiveness, time after time after. And if you've been in a marriage or you've been in a long-term friendship, like, you know this. Like, this gets tested in relationships over time. And the ones that are the greatest blessing are the ones that we're not keeping score against one another. Forgiveness has no limits. And now lastly, the nuance. Forgive and be wise. Why does this need a nuance on it? Well, the truth is, in this fallen world, there are people um, who will take advantage of everything that we've just said. And they are a danger to you, and they will abuse your friendship, they will abuse you as a person. And so we are compelled to forgive, and we must, but we cannot confuse forgiveness with free access to all of you all of the time. And so, as this, this uh, verse in Titus helpfully kind of demonstrates this, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. We must forgive, but we also must walk in wisdom with those around us. This is not a get-out-of-jail-free card, but what this is is wisdom for the believer to know how do I navigate some of these relationships that are toxic and dangerous to, to me and my family. We must walk in wisdom, but the principle of forgiveness continues to be a non-negotiable. Why? Because the forgiven forgive. The forgiven forgive. That's the principle of forgiveness. Now let's quickly look at the penalty of unforgiveness. So one of the things that kept coming up was when we looked at the words by the king, it says, and out of anger the king acted. And for some, that seems really out of step with the God that we know and his character. And can God act out of anger? Does he have emotions that function like that? Like that was a real wrestle for some people. And, and so the truth is God does have emotions. He feels certain ways about certain things. And the response of the king toward the wicked servant is not out of step with the severity of how God deals with our sin. God's emotions, his perspectives, and his severity they are based in his covenantal commitments and relationships to us. So what does that mean? Here's a, a commentator helpfully put it this way. This, that last sentence I just said, means that God's emotions are faithful, they're stable, they're grounded in his concern for creation and humanity. His feelings neither shift nor vary. When he sees evil, he's not angry one time and blasé the next. He's properly concerned about good and evil. He cares the right way about the right things. His emotions are well-ordered. And so therefore, the last sentence, the hard-hearted idiocy of the merciless servant makes God angry and rightly so. God will rightly punish those who do not forgive by allowing them to spend eternity apart from him and his forgiveness. Those are not my words so, you might be saying, I, 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 Brandon, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I believe I'm a follower of Jesus, and I have been struggling to forgive my brother does, or sister. Does that mean that I'm going to hell? Well, listen very carefully. The heart that is habitually and consistently unwilling to forgive 
is demonstrating that their heart has not been changed by the mercy of God. Christians can struggle with forgiveness, but we must have fruit that demonstrate that we are a people of forgiveness. So to say it plainly, if there is habitual unforgiveness, that is evidence that the Spirit has not regenerated your heart. It's evidence that you have not experienced the forgiveness that we've just talked about, and so that you are not a believer. And yes, then, if that is the state of your heart, you will spend eternity apart from God. Because your debt has not been paid. The principle is clear, and so is the penalty. And, uh, like, that is a severe penalty. And if, if you're in this room right now, and you're struggling to understand the severity of God, if you can't make sense of this, Usually it's because we really do have a faulty and deficient understanding of our sin. Like, we think our sin is this $12,000 debt, and we feel a sense of entitlement to this forgiveness. And so how can God act severely against us? We don't understand the gravity of the offense that has been committed. This is not a $12,000 debt. This is a billion upon billion dollar debt. And to downplay our sin cheapens the grace of God. It cheapens the forgiveness that we have received in Christ. And so I just want to say, like, just think about this for a second. Just think about the self-existent eternal God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In perfection dwelling for all of eternity, they created us out of an abundance of love, out of an abundance of goodness. Like God spoke and galaxies were made. And then he comes down to his creation and he takes a pile of dirt and he forms man into his image. He breathes his spirit into him. And he offers him a life of identity and purpose and belonging and love. And all of this, like the offer was for man to dwell with God in perfection. But we reject him. Like, that should blow our brains. Like, we reject God. The creation rejected the creator. And we waved our fist in the sky and we took our credit card of sin and we just go off and we swipe and we swipe and we swipe. And and we are racking up this debt all while waving a fist in the face of our heavenly father, offending him. Like, that is what our sin is doing And then we look around when we get a moment of clarity at this debt that we've racked up and we go like, I can't pay that. And God has every right to deal with us in his justice based on the debt that we have accrued. But God, but God seeing us like the king had compassion. He had pity And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this world to live a perfect life. To die on a cross in my place for my sin, paying the penalty that I could not. One of the things that struck me this week is God didn't just erase our debt off a chalkboard. Like, it actually cost him something. And it was paid by the blood of Jesus by the sacrifice of his own life because he loved you and he couldn't leave you in your sin. This is what forgiveness looks like. One more verse from Colossians chapter 2. And you, this is us, who were dead in your trespasses 
and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Look at this, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. There is a record of debt that stands against each and every one of us. And for those of us who have been forgiven by Christ, he took that and he nailed that to a cross, paying the debt that we could never pay. Like, this is the forgiveness of Jesus. This is how good our God is. That's what Jesus has done for you. And so there's some of us in this room right now who are... um, you have real things, like there are real debts, there are real wrongs that have been committed against you. And if I heard your story, um, and if we heard your story, like we would be hurting with you. And you say, honestly, like forgiveness seems just so far out of reach. And to you I say, I'm not trying to minimize anything. In fact, I'm trying to do the opposite. I do invite you to gaze up at the goodness of Jesus. Look at what he has done for you. Look how he has forgiven all of your sin. Look at the life-altering, jaw-dropping mercy of God on your behalf. And guess what happens? That gap that feels so out of reach just starts to close. It starts to close because we understand that we have been forgiven. And hear me, the forgiven forgive. The forgiven forgive. Forgive, And so for some of you right now who are harboring unforgiveness and bitterness, I pray that you ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart, that you might release some people in the light of understanding how much you and I have been forgiven by Jesus. The forgiven forgive. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful. We're so thankful for the forgiveness of Jesus. We're so thankful that you paid our debt We recognize we could not pay this debt. We had no ability. One sin, one sin is enough to separate us from God. And we all know the size of debt that we have accrued. And we're just so thankful that Jesus took this debt. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands by nailing it to a cross. So even right now, as we move into a time of reflection, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would make this such a meaningful time applying this beautiful truth into our hearts right now. In Jesus' name, amen.